0: thank you for the goodness of your creation. We thank you that you have put us in this world which is lovely and beautiful and meets all of our needs. And even though, O oh Lord, we live under a curse that you pronounced upon Adam, we don't live without joy. But we live in the hope of the gospel which you have announced immediately to Adam and Eve and even given us an inheritance and share of that same gospel. For in good time the seed of the woman did appear, our Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem us and to give us hope of a new creation, even more glorious than this one, which we cannot even imagine. We thank you in this hope, O Lord, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are doing Covenant Theology Been a while, so I thought I might remind you. (laughs) We spoke about the Abrahamic covenant. What I'd like to do is just point out a few places where the Abrahamic covenant is remembered in Scripture. Then I'm going to uh, pause after that and discuss the distinction between the covenant and its administration. I failed to do that earlier in our outline and I want to make sure you understand that distinction. So then we will turn our attention to the Mosaic Covenant. That's the plan. I'm going to follow the outline as much as possible but we're just going to do what we have to do. <laughs> now the Abrahamic Covenant as we you recall was inaugurated With Abraham in Genesis 17, excuse me, Genesis 15, then in Genesis 17, the sign of that covenant was issued so that the people would carry the sign with them. In the question and answer, we talked about the appropriateness of the sign and circumcision, a number of elements focusing on the seed promise. It was appropriate to remind the people that the promise to Abraham was in a coming seed, so it looked forward in history. The sign of circumcision also represented being cut off if you were a covenant breaker. And of course, in uh, Genesis 17, there is that statement, the one who does not accept circumcision will be cut off. There's a clear pun going on there. So it's a sign of judgment for covenant breaking. Now, as we proceed... I'm going to make sure you understand that the requirement of the covenant of grace, including the Abrahamic covenant, was faith, living faith. And you represented that living faith by accepting the covenantal sign and seal, circumcision. So it was an act of faith to circumcise, not a meritorious grounds for being accepted by God circumcising itself had no value apart from faith. But as an act of faith, it testified to a living faith and was a uh, public proclamation of accepting the terms of God's covenant, faith in his promised seed. And for the faithful believer, circumcision was not a sign of being cut off, but that someone else would be cut off from his people on our behalf. So that we can talk about Christ being circumcised. And that's exactly what Paul does in Colossians 2. Christ was circumcised on our behalf. Paul actually alludes to Christ being cut off as happening on the cross. So that he was cut off for his people. Of course, going right back to Isaiah 53 he would be cut off from the land of the living for the sake of many. So that for Christ, circumcision represents his falling under the curse that was due to us. But then when we accept, I, I say we, the people under the Abrahamic covenant, if we were the children of Abraham and received circumcision, it would be a sign of cleansing as well, cutting off the unclean member that unclean part so it had these uh, elements to it which are a little complex but it represented in a way you know, as, as well as a, uh, a sign can it represented the complexity of that covenant that God was making to Abraham and it was itself part of the administration of the covenant and I'll explain that momentarily But the Abrahamic covenant marks a landmark in the revelation of God. It is remembered thereafter, even into the New Testament age. We are called seed of Abraham, heirs according to promise, we who believe, Jew and Gentile together. We are seed of Abraham. We should identify today as seed of Abraham. We have an inheritance that is cast in terms of, of the same inheritance that Abraham looked forward to, except we see it more clearly. But afterwards, the Abrahamic promise was remembered over and over and over. Just a few of the examples would be Exodus two twenty four. God heard the groaning of the children of Israel in Egypt, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Exodus 2.24. God remembered their groaning. He heard their groaning and was concerned about them because he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now just an observation on the fly here. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't just say he remembered his covenant with Abraham, but he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, the covenant when it was made with Abraham was, I will be your God and the God of your seed after you. So that covenant becomes theirs as well. They become identified with that covenant. So he remembered his covenant with Abraham, but also with Isaac and Jacob. There are not three covenants. There's only this one inaugurated with Abraham, but the others are included even when they haven't been born yet. They are in mind. Because God, in his covenantal administration, has all of his people in mind in the covenant of grace. Remember, this covenant of redemption, you see, is the eternal, divinely uh, cast counsel of God, this covenant of redemption, where all of this comes together so that God expresses his covenant to Abraham, but with Isaac and Jacob in mind and all of the seed of Abraham as well. So that it's identified as their covenant as well. So in a sense, you could say, this is the covenant of Jim. This is the covenant of Steve. This is the covenant of Anne. You see, you could, you could almost say that because if you identify in this covenant, it is yours as well. And what it means is God is your God in the same sense as Isaac could say that and Jacob. Well, it's also remembered later under the law, which we'll turn to in a moment, in Leviticus 26, the curses that fall upon covenant-breaking Israel have their fulfillment in expulsion from the land, this land of inheritance. In Leviticus 26, verse 41, well, beginning with verse 40, but if after they are expelled from the land and in exile, if the Israelites will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them down into the land of their enemies, Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sins, notice uncircumcised hearts, the spiritual nature of the Abrahamic covenant is very clear, and it has been all along. Now verse 42. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. And it says he will bring them back from their exile, but only a remnant course in its fulfillment but you see he remembers his covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob it is not put on the shelf at the time of the Israelite covenant the covenant with Moses the Abrahamic covenant continues to be a ground and foundation of God's dealing with his people then I will remember that and and you see he says I will remember this is a way of saying it is still in force that promise I made is still in force, and I will act on the basis of that covenant promise that I made, that I am your God and you will be my people. So that's what it means that God will remember. He hasn't, of course, forgotten. It just means that he will act on the basis of that promise and that arrangement. So it continues to be in force throughout all the succeeding ages, In 2 Kings 13.22, another place. Again, I've just selected a few to show you the range of places where the Abrahamic covenant is remembered. In 2 Kings 13.22, Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob to this day he had been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence notice how that, that undergirding of the Abrahamic covenant and the Isaac covenant and the Jacob covenant is still in, in force even when they are oppressed God has not abandoned Israel now you know when we get there and you know this already Israel is the church you see it is his people What is the definition of the church except those who've been summoned to be the people of God? And that's the the issue of the Abrahamic promise. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. And so that covenantal underpinning is present in 2 Kings despite their being chastised by enemies. The people of God were still the people of God. Now, that was true even into the New Testament era. I mentioned last time a red part of the prophecy of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, when in the Spirit he prophesied and said that, that the birth of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah, signaled that God would show mercy, that the salvation had come, that the fathers had looked for. Now, quoting Luke one seventy two to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So here is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, he says. Now will the salvation that that Abrahamic covenant looks forward to arrive? Now God has remembered his holy covenant. The oath, notice covenant and oath going together. So that when you see oath in the scriptures, you should think of covenant. Because the oath confirms the covenant and makes it this solemn bond. And now the great Fulfillment of that is being inaugurated in the New Testament era. And this is when we get to the New Covenant, of course. There's a direct line being drawn between the Abrahamic Covenant and the New Covenant throughout the Scripture. But you see, it's also enforced even in the book of Acts. The Jews were still regarded as the heirs of that covenant. Now, there's a transition going on. But listen to what Peter says in his sermon in Acts 3:24 and 25. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. Notice in that one verse, this is Acts 3:24. All the prophets are announcing these days of the new covenant era. It is you who are the sons of the prophets. And of the covenant. Let's condense that phrase. He says, You are sons of two things, sons of the prophets and sons of the covenant. Now, what that phrase means is, You are the heirs of the covenant. You are the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, because he goes on to explain which covenant. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You are sons of the Abrahamic covenant, he says. You are heirs of this. Now, at this stage, it's, it's worthwhile to pause and just point out that all the heirs were not heirs in its spiritual sense, were they? And this, of course, is the great theme of Jacob and Esau, picked up in Romans 9, where he makes that point very explicitly that the Abrahamic Covenant issue was faith. And the one who does not have faith is an heir of the temporal promise and an heir of the promise who rejects it. An heir of the spiritual promise. In other words, the great spiritual promise of the Abrahamic Covenant belongs to all the Israelites. They are sons of the prophets and sons of the covenant. And yet they can reject that in unbelief, as did Esau. And in so doing, cut himself off from those promises in unbelief. So faith is a great requirement of the Abrahamic covenant. But still, Esau was an heir on the other level, you see. He was an heir. How do we know that? He was circumcised. His was the circumcision. And his was God. And yet he rejected God by rejecting that inheritance that was his. And so you see, the church of that age, under Abraham and succeeding generations, was a mixed church. And this is where the doctrine of the church really has to be founded. The church consists of all those who profess faith and their children who receive baptism. But that includes people like Esau who are members of the church but who fall under the judgment of God in unbelief and in so doing must be expelled fall under church discipline in the end. Now I'm talking about someone who doesn't repent. It doesn't mean that there won't be people who fall under excommunication that won't repent and come back. I'm not saying that. But you need to understand that the church exists as a visible church and an invisible church. Now, I'm, I'm not saying anything new here, brothers and sisters. This is just another way of talking covenantally about the visible church and the invisible church. But you see, it is a covenantal issue. So when we talk about the covenant community... We mean all those who are heirs of the promise. And that includes people who are baptized and grow up in the church and yet may reject their inheritance. But you can't deny that it really was their inheritance. It belonged to them by right, and yet they did not claim it. They rejected it in unbelief. Yet, in a sense, it was theirs to reject. And this, of course, is how you understand the great apostasy passages in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. So you can say there are three kinds of people in the world. There are the elect, who are members of the visible church, and the invisible church. They are elect from eternity. They are granted faith and repentance by God. and and they grow up in that inheritance and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit and enter into the joy of their Father at the end of their days and into the eternal kingdom. Then there are the non-elect who are also in the church, who are baptized members of the visible church, some of whom make profession of faith. As adults and yet who, as time goes on, demonstrate that they really have not had genuine working of the Spirit that results in living faith, and who fall away from the living God and fall under that condemnation of those who've tasted of the heavenly gift, Hebrews 6, in rejecting it have rejected the eternal inheritance and fall under worse judgment than if they'd never had any contact with these spiritual affairs. Now that, brothers and sisters, are people who are not elect by God. They may experience a kind of working of the Spirit, but it is not saving. They are in contact with the spiritual things in the church, with the Word of God, with the sacraments, with the covenant community. And none of us can know who those people are. Your elders don't have insight from God into who exactly that is. And yet your elders have to make a determination. We're commanded in Scripture to call out the ungodly man in your congregation through church discipline for the purpose of glorifying God, purifying the assembly, but also praying all the time that God will grant that repentance to that person and bring them back. You see, it's always in hope that we exercise church discipline. And then the third kind of person in the world is the person entirely outside the covenant community. The unbeliever who has no contact directly with, uh, with the church is not a member of the church. And that's the person outside. It's interesting when you read 1 Corinthians 5. Well, you read really much of the New Testament and this, this is the structure of the church. For example, 1 Corinthians 5 Paul says, Now, when I wrote to you not to associate with ungodly men, I didn't mean those outside. I meant a so-called brother. You see that structure? Here's an ungodly person, a so-called brother. That means someone in the visible church. He says, I didn't mean those outside the church. If, if, If I meant that, you'd have to leave the world. You see, this is Paul's argument in in 1 Corinthians 5 for church discipline. And you see, that's what we have throughout the Abrahamic covenant as well, but also in the new covenant. That structure is the same. And this is what we're going to see with the continuity of the covenants. There is a continuity because God is laying the foundation of the new covenant in the prior covenants. And this is what our, our Baptist friends in particular don't see. They think of the Old Testament as an experiment that failed and God just pretty much threw that away. Now, they don't go that to that extreme. I'm perhaps overcharacterizing. But in effect, that, that is what they're doing. But instead, you must see the Old Testament because of the connections The Old Testament is laying the foundation for understanding the New Testament. And when you see that, then you can see the continuity and how to draw out the continuity between the prior revelation and the fullness of the new revelation, of the new covenant. Well, I threw sort of a lot of things in there ad hoc a little bit, but these are important elements of covenant that, uh, again, I'm you just start talking about covenant you start connecting with just about everything in theology and it's a little hard to uh, not make those connections that they're vital connections it's a way you know as you've already discovered covenant theology is a way of understanding the whole of scripture So, do you have any questions before we uh, get into covenant administration this really relates to what I just said but I want to pause Caroline, where Genesis twelve, one and three. Now the Lord. The question is, explain Genesis 12:1 and 3 and connect it to the Abrahamic Covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And he knew all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a pre-preaching of the gospel as we saw in Galatians 3, verse 8. This is the en- entrance of the gospel in a fuller form than we found in Genesis 3:15, And it's a good occasion to comment on the unity of the gospel message in the Old Testament. It's always promissory and looking forward to a fulfillment. And as God adds to that fulfillment, it's the seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head as, as now is added, God will do this for a collection of people. And that people will specifically follow in the footsteps of Abraham. So Abraham's name will be great. He will be a blessing. He would just be an agency for God to bless all the families of the earth. So it begins with Abraham's physical descendants. But at that place, Paul interprets this as saying, Yet God is really looking forward to the day when all the nations will come into the family of Abraham and receive the blessing under his household and become seed of Abraham also by that spiritual circumcision through faith. And this is just one of those uh, places where, you see, he announces this. He actually elaborates on this later also uh, in... uh, it's reiterated, by the way, also to Isaac, the same promise, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's reiterated to Isaac when he receives, uh, is confirmed in the covenant, we should say. So this is this really the central aspect of the uh, gospel element in the covenant of Abraham. The land promise here is what is going to be fulfilled in the Mosaic covenant, yet even then it's only... A proleptic, a preliminary fulfillment, looking ahead really to the eternal rest. This, by the way, is a confessional statement. (laughs) Our confession puts it that way, so it sort of makes it more binding than if I just say it. No, it's a it's a standard interpretation of covenant theology. Yes, sir. possible to Yeah, the question is is it possible to use covenant theology essentially to use that as a uh topic for dialoguing with modern day Jews to evangelize him, I would say absolutely yes. Because this is a way of connecting with the Old Testament in a way that they can understand. It certainly is the framework for the first evangelist to the Jews, namely the apostles. <laughs> I, I I always commend us to follow the Apostles' example. Yeah. Absolutely. No, and it's it's a uh, I mean, this is it. This may be even the primary way to discuss it with the with the uh, Jews. When we when we do it abstracted from Abraham uh, and just talk about prophecies in general or something, maybe they won't see the connections quite as clearly. We're, we're always relying upon the Spirit in our evangelism, of course. But this is a, a way to, particularly, to broach the subject because I think I, I think if you talk to a modern day Jew and their conceptions of Christianity. They think of it as an entirely Gentile thing that we created—that you know somehow the German Lutherans created or something. They, they really are, don't know much about Christianity firsthand, um, and this might be a good way to approach it. to be very careful. Uh, as with most people, with modern day Jews, you have to set the ground rule for your discussion in saying we're going to stick to the scriptures alone as our our, our foundation for talking. Because modern day Judaism is a rabbinical tradition. Mm-hmm. The rabbis have reinterpreted the Old Testament so much that so much of what we understand in the Old Testament is lost on it. They have to go back and say, sticking with you know, actual scriptures, not the rabbi's interpretation of the scriptures. Yeah. But it's, an act, it's a very good point uh, that, that covenant theology lends itself to evangelism, particularly evangelism to Jews. Yeah. Pastor Pontier pointed out that the modern Jews are influenced by rabbinic Judaism reinterpreting the Old Testament and you have to, in evangelizing, stick to the scripture. Maybe the way to start is to go into their home and propose an Old Testament Bible study. You could always start with Isaiah. (laughs) Well, no, you'd want to start with Genesis. Starting with Genesis might even be worthwhile, huh? And and go through the Abrahamic covenant and and its forward-looking character. Very good. I had a class with a liberal Jew in college, and it was very eye-opening just how the Scripture didn't mean much to him at all. It was just tradition that uh, spoke to him. He actually reminded me a lot of my upbringing as a, as a uh, United Presbyterian, liberal Presbyterian. It was very similar, just moralism. Essentially. Doing good. Well, what about these uh, two terms, covenant and administration? Well, I'm going to uh, read some things to you here. What I'd like to do is refer you to the larger catechism, questions 31 and the following, that I uh, printed in your handbook. I'll refer you to that, but I'm actually going to read the same material in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's just another way of stating really the same truths. I'd like to just go through this briefly with you. It's it's more or less a review of, of all that we've done, but I think review is worthwhile with this stuff. primarily because what we're doing here this whole week really is just showing you the big picture in sketch form and then then you can start filling in details and start seeing it really operating in Scripture more clearly. And this is something that, that for some of us takes quite some time to really sink in. Uh, it certainly has with me, and I was speaking with one of the pastors who really learned covenant theology on his own. He's not here, by the way. But, but he said it took a couple of years to really grasp all the significance of it. And because of that, I'd like to read this to you, just making uh, comments along the way, reading all of chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their, as their blessedness and reward but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Three things I'd like, well, two things I'd like to point out. One, we owe obedience to God as our Creator, and he has put the law in our heart by which we know what he wants. How do we obey him? Well, he he has put his law in our heart. This is what the larger catechism adds to this. Yeah, in the back of your hymnal. 676. Page 676 in the blue hymnal. So we owe obedience to God as our covenant God, you see, as our creator. This is o- owing obedience, you see, stipulations of a covenant. And it's the covenant of creation, the covenant of works. But also, it's something I said before and I just want to point out, it's right here because this is an essential wonderful aspect of covenant theology. Notice what they say our reward is. Yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. God is our blessedness and our reward. You see, when I say the, the, the real benefit and the payoff of the covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people, this mutual possession of God. It means having God and him being our entire blessedness and our reward. And of course, that promise to Abraham, I will be your shield and your very great reward. And they're expressing this wonderful truth. So in the end, you see, when you talk about covenant theology, you should think of this payoff all the time because this is what it, it yields. It yields this Wonderful awareness of what God is giving us in covenant. He's giving us Himself. Okay, now, number two. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. They just leave out the word perpetual but that's in the larger catechism version. So we have here, as we said before, the first covenant, and notice they use the term first covenant, a covenant of works. They say first covenant because the second is the covenant of grace. The first covenant is a covenant of works wherein life was promised. So the issue is life to Adam and in him, you see, Adam is a covenant representative we call that federal head. And the term federal in theology just is a Latin term for covenantal. So when I say a federal head, I just mean covenant head. It's just using a Latin derivative for the word covenant. The Latin word for covenant is foedus, F-O-E-D-U-S, foedus, And that's where we get the word federal. You know, our federal government government is our covenant government. We have covenanted as states to have a federal government. But you see, Adam is a federal head. In him comes this blessing of life. In him, so that if he would have succeeded in the test of the covenant of works, in him would have come life. We saw this in Romans 5. But in him... It was conditioned on perfect and personal obedience. And that is the heart of the covenant of works, personal obedience. He must do it himself. That's the great issue of the covenant of works. Not that there are works required. All covenants have stipulations. Something is required. We'll talk about the stipulation of the covenant of grace. It's faith, which is not a work. But here is personal obedience. Number 3. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, namely the covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. This is just really good. (laughs) I love good theology because good theology brings together critical truths and puts together in this short place that once you unpack, you start seeing the organic unity of Scripture and how all of Scripture uh, on these topics falls together so well. Man, by his fall having made himself incapable of life. And, and he, they use the word man here on purpose. It means Adam and all those who are in Adam, which means all who have been born from Adam. Anybody here been born from an extraterrestrial? Yeah. I didn't think you'd admit it, you were. But it. Well, they never do, you know. <laughs> you just can't get them to speak the truth, you know. <laughs> different law in uh, Mars. All the, all the children of Adam, you see, are, are under the curse of that covenant so that that covenant no longer can be the means of us attaining life, ever. Anybody, absolutely. This is a, this is a universal statement. So the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, a second covenant. And that second covenant began, as we saw, in Genesis 3.15. But notice that that Genesis 3.15, covenant of grace, and all the succeeding forms, he offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. That covenant of grace, even before Christ came, was looking to Christ. This is what they're saying. Requiring of them faith in him. There's the stipulation of the covenant of grace. Living faith but that faith comes uh, promising to all those who are ordained unto eternal life. There's election. That faith comes uh, through the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit makes them willing and able to believe. So even the requirement and the stipulation of faith is a gift. And this is just so wonderfully expressed over and over and has to be as the gospel. So, anyway, that's that's a uh, uh, an important point. And so this is explaining when we talk about circumcision being required, circumcision as an expression of faith. Okay, number 4. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in scripture by the name of a testament. Some of us have a little qualms about that because it's probably twice set forth by the name of the Testament. Uh, and it's hard to see that as frequent. Maybe if you say frequent means more than one. <laughs> or if you see some of the Old Testament mosaic uh, elements as testamentary, that's, that's possible. And that may be what the divines have in mind. If that's the case, then, then I would agree with them. But in the New Testament, there's just really two places you can point to. But the point is that they're they're associating the covenant of grace with this testament, you see, and the character of a testament is an inheritance given freely. And that's true of the covenant of grace, you see, it has that aspect. In reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the Testator, this is Hebrews nine. He died, we receive the benefit. And to the everlasting inheritance, with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Now number five. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. So this is where we make that distinction between the covenant and its administration. When you talk about an administration, you are particularly talking about the sacraments and other elements which, by which the covenant is given and maintained to the people who are parties of the covenant. So that would include things in the law, as we're going to read in a moment. So when, the, when you want to know what we mean by administration of the covenant, here are the kinds of things that the confession points to. Under the law, it was, it being the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come. So the administration in the Old Covenant was looking forward and had a multitude of forms, all of which put together help us understand the fullness of Christ. No one can the Passover lamb contributes significantly to our understanding of Christ's ministry, but it is not alone the one symbol of his ministry. Circumcision is as well. So that the administration are these requirements on God's people to perform, to initiate them into the covenant, that circumcision with the Abrahamic, and also to maintain their membership in the covenant. These are the things we call administration of the covenant. And in the Old Covenant, under the law, the Mosaic Covenant, there are uh, particularly detailed kind of things that they were required to do to maintain their membership in the visible church, as it were. That's administration. Okay, so there were, in the Old Testament all these things, for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious, effective, through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah. Notice that these things served faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and it's called the Old Testament. By the way, the confession here is taking a strong stand on a, con- on a contested point in whether the Old Testament had remission of sins or mere passing over of sins. That's a little debated point in covenant theology. It's hardly worth saying any more about, frankly. It was one of those disputes that didn't really produce a lot of good fruit. But number six, under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, What what do they mean by Christ's substance? The substance of the covenant of grace under the old covenant and in the new. He is what it all is about, you see. He's the substance of the covenant. And that's the term that was being used more and more in covenant theology to talk about uh, you can have differences of administration, but the substance is the same throughout. There's continuity of the substance, Christ. Even though... The, the forms of administering the covenant may vary, the substance is united, and He is Christ. So, under the gospel, when Christ's substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered much more simply, excuse me, with more simplicity and less outward glory, Yet in them, it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. You like that word, don't you? (laughs) See, we're dispensationalists in a sense. But you see, when they say dispensations, they mean an era of administration that varies from one to another. So the administration varies, but the substance does not. And it depends on what form of dispensationalism you're dealing with. But there is a form of dispensationalism where the substance changed from era to era. And that's what makes us really different in that regard and why our theology is called covenant theology. And and you see, the confession of faith at this point is adopting really a generic covenant theology. Uh, there were little details they could have added that were being disputed here. They rarely took a, a, a firm stand on all the details. But in, in lining out this chapter, they are staking a claim for generic, pretty full blown still covenant theology so that you can say our uh, confessional standards are embodying truly and very fully covenant theology there's a lot of it in here and i read this because just you, you know every phrase you start unpacking what it means and it connects to some really important doctrines in covenant theology now let me just give you one scripture just one, to show you, uh, I taught this class at, at our seminary, and we opened it up to the community, and there was a, a member of the class, and I don't know who he, who he is or where he's from, he, he was some form of dispensationalist, so. and, and we had some good chats, but he just couldn't see the idea of administration being a biblical concept, so I, I pointed him. He, he just didn't understand. He thought that was an artificial distinction to just, to call, talk about covenant unity with varying administrations. He just didn't see the word administration being a biblical term, and therefore not being a biblical concept. I had to get over that hurdle to begin with, right? You can have the concept without a particular word attached to it. As long as you've got the same concept, let's call it administration, even if it's called different things in Scripture. But if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, and people call it a mouse, it's a duck. <laughs> okay? Okay. Maybe that's not the good illustration. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly being an Oregonian and a University of Oregon fighting duck. <laughs> oh, happy alum. Okay. Uh, Hebrews 9 1. He's been uh in chapter 8, he's been the author of Hebrews has been showing how the new covenant fulfills the old and thereby makes the old shadowy forms uh, fulfilled, and therefore passing away, near to disappearing, he says in Hebrews 8.13. Now the first covenant, he doesn't use the word covenant, but it's implied, the first covenant had regulations for worship. And it regarded the, uh, the holy service and a tabernacle, you know, the first tabernacle was set up and it had all these elements and then he goes on and on into it focusing on the, the uh, day of atonement sacrifice. Now, he goes on into that and then he, he just stops after a while and says, that's enough of that. But I want to just point out that this word regulations, he, he attaches the regulations of priestly worship of Aaron with a tabernacle the breastplate with the stones on it, all those requirements that God had set up for the day of atonement sacrifice, he said those are attached to the first covenant. And those are regulations required to administer that covenant, you see. That's, That's what you have to understand here. Those regulations are established around this first covenant to administer it, to regulate it to set up institutions, external institutions. Think of it that way. If you're going to have a church, you've got to have a building. If you have a building, you've got to have regulations. And you're administering the worship of the the church. And you establish regulations and administration. How often are you going to have the sacraments? Who's going to do the preaching of the word? These are administrations of your covenant community. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about with administration. It's the regulations surrounding the uh, promotion of your religion, as it were. And you can talk about these as the substance of the covenant and then its varying administration over the ages. So that's what we mean by that. And you see, this is a way we understand the continuity of the covenant of grace. The substance is the same. In the old covenant, they were looking for Christ. And God was showing them Christ in picture forms, types and regulations. Well, the confession uses those words. Uh, The confession in chapter 7. That Christ was... Administered under the law, it was administered under promises, prophecy, sacrifices, circumcision, other types and ordinances delivered to the people, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and effective through the operation of the Spirit, to to uh, edify the faithful and to convict the uh, unrepentant and to hold forth the promises of God. They were sufficient but now they've now that same covenant has advanced and with the fullness of Christ we it's administered much more simply much more spiritually it's still administered with physical things preaching of the word and sacraments we're not so spiritual that god has abandoned all of our physical needs in worship we 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 have to have pastors we have to have the preaching of the word the scriptures before us the sacraments are god's own icons, as it were. We don't have icons, do we, in our churches? Rightly so. We must never do such. But God has given us a portrait, hasn't he? A kind of icon, as it were, in the Lord's Supper. There is a physical portrayal of the body and blood of Christ, but not in picture form. And that's the only kind of icon we can have. So this is how the covenant of grace is now administered, you see. So the administration changes, but the substance stays the same. And this is the great beauty of covenant theology, is understanding how the continuity is made in Scripture, and yet also how the differences are there. And so our dispensational brothers, and I'm not trying to pick on them, it's just that you all, many of you have had contact with them or been dispensationalists, they accent the differences they make the differences so strong that it, that it undermines the essential unity of the covenant. So, we, we try to hold both in balance, understand the scriptural balance on this. Th- this was all review. I, you know, <laughs> we're, we're definitely going to fall behind by an hour. We could just skip the Mosaic covenant. You don't want to hear about the Moses. All right, we'll do Moses in the next hour. All right. Okay, we'll take a break. 15.